Romans chapter 14. We're winding down here. It's important to remember that as we come to these later chapters in Romans, that they're written after the previous chapters. You say, well, that sounds kind of dumb. Of course, they're later. They were written after the previous ones. But we've studied through the whole book. So what Paul's writing is you would never want to pick up Romans chapter 14 and just start reading here. You'd want to know what led up to this. And what you'll find is the first 11 chapters are very doctrinal. They're very, they're very doctrinal in what we believe and, and why we believe it. Then you get to chapter 12 and 13 and 14. And they become very, very uh, applicable. We can apply them to our lives. And you know, we're, we, Paul addresses some of the issues going on in the Roman church uh, at the time. And, and we'll see that while they might not be exactly like the issues going on in our churches today... Usually the reasoning and the heart behind them are, are very similar, if not identical. Just like, many of, just like many churches today, the believers in Rome, they were becoming divided. There was, there was division that was happening. They were dividing over food, whether or not you could eat certain foods or not eat certain foods. They were dividing over holidays or Jewish feasts, whether or not we should keep the Jewish feasts, whether or not we shouldn't keep the Sabbath day, those kinds of things. And some of the members thought it was a sin to eat meat because it might have been sacrificed to an idol. It could have been. In response, they ate only vegetables. And other Christians thought it was a sin to not keep the holy days of the Jews or not keep the Sabbath day. And here's the thing. If they had kept these convictions to themselves, there never would have been a problem. But what ultimately happens? Instead, they begin to criticize. They begin to judge their fellow Christians. They begin to and they want to enforce their own convictions. They want to place their own convictions on somebody else, their own personal convictions. And they want that to be enforced in the church. Everybody should believe like I believe. Everybody should do what I do and see it how I see it. Well, sadly, not much has changed, has it? Very similar to that way today in churches if we let it be. In today's churches, we're not dividing over food and Jewish feasts, but division can be found and it must be guarded against. It's something that we have to take very, very seriously. Here in Romans chapter 14, Paul's going to address in a very, very practical way. He's going to address it for us. How we as believers should relate to one another when it comes to our own personal convictions. Or to, shall we say, the gray areas of Christianity. The gray areas. So let's look at Romans 14, 1 together. I'm going to read a few verses and then we'll come back and talk about them. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. In the very first verse, we see a couple of things that need to be explored. Notice with me, if you will, first of all, there are those believers who are weak in their faith, and there are those believers who are strong in their faith. They're weak in their faith. Well, what does it mean if someone is weak in their faith? It speaks of those who for a period of time might be sick or they might be feeble, but have the opportunity to become well or to become strong. So it's a, it's a period of time there. Think of it as someone who is immature in their faith. 
Someone who hasn't grown up in their faith. Their, their, their doctrine hasn't become solid. Their, their Bible, they haven't learned their Bible the way that they should. They, they, maybe they've learned some verses and they memorize them, but they haven't applied them to their life. Their, their spiritual maturity would be rather low. Well, what would be some reasons for this? What would be a reason someone would be weak in their faith? Well, they may be a brand new believer. Maybe somebody who just came to the Lord and they've never read the Bible and they don't really know too much about it. And they're just brand new. They're learning all of everything for the first time. They're going to grow and they're going to mature in the Lord. It may be that they've been stuck in legalism for a long time. They could have been in a very legalistic background where they're all, because they're following the law, they're always right and everybody else is wrong. So they think very highly of themselves. And they don't have a true picture of who they are. It might be because they never really sat under solid biblical teaching. They weren't taught the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Instead, what they heard was po political opinions and, and a pastor's ideas and, and philosophical debates and, and, and psychological uh, solutions. Maybe that's the things that they heard from the pulpit. They weren't taught solid biblical teaching. That would keep somebody to be young in their faith or to be immature or to be weak in their faith. Perhaps they've never been challenged to grow spiritually. They've never been encouraged to grow spiritually. For whatever reason, the church has just been a place where they just go and they sit and they listen to a message and they leave. They've never really taken it as something, I'm going to take this with me when I leave here. I'm going to take this word of God and I'm going to apply it to my life. It's, it's just been something that's come in their head. It's never something that's been, they've been lived out in their heart. That would make somebody weak in the faith. Those would just be a few of the reasons. I'm sure there's others. And here's what I found to be true about those people who are weak in their faith. Number one, they often assume they're the stronger one in their faith. You see, they always think they've got it all together. They're often the ones that say, no, I'm not the weak one. They're the weak one. They think they've got it all figured out. They've got it all together. Number two, they often make quick judgments based only on outward appearance or only what they've heard, not seeking out the rest of the facts of a situation. They respond with a snap judgment, not realizing there's at least how many sides to every story? Three. Three. Your side, my side, and the truth. A minimum. There's always going to be three sides because we're all painting ourselves in the best light possible. We would always do that. They often become emotionally upset when someone disagrees with them. They don't see things the way they do and they want to, they want to argue about it. They want to fight about it. They, want, they become emotional and they attach this emotion to it. and They want everyone to agree with them. And, and don't ever challenge them because they'll just get right upset with you. They become often very opinionated or dogmatic about doubtful things or things that are not really significant in the body of Christ, things that are gray areas, things that don't really matter. And they're often surrounded by controversy, drama, pride, everywhere they go that's just kind of floating with them. Now, I said something interesting, and Paul says something, the number two thing he says in verse one, we're not to dispute over doubtful things. What are doubtful things? All right, Rob, what are the things that we're not to dispute over? What kinds of doubtful things? What do you mean? Here's what doubtful things mean. They're areas in the life of a believer. So they're areas in your life and in my life that are not clearly defined or mapped out in the scriptures. And sometimes they're based on culture. They're based on background. They're based on your upbringing. Let me make it real easy for you. It's the gray areas of Christianity. The gray areas. The things where the Bible doesn't speak very, very clearly to. Now, I want to make a point. I'm going to make this point at least three times in the message today, I hope. Paul is not talking about the things that the Bible clearly spells out about sin. Okay, where the Bible is clear, Paul's not referring to this. He's referring to those things that are doubtful, those gray areas. These are things the Bible doesn't speak about, and they're left to what we would call your own personal liberty. 
In other words, you get to seek the Lord. Is this something I'm going to do in my life or is it something I'm not going to do in my life? The whole message today is going to center around the gray areas of Christianity. What do we do with them? How do we address them? Verse 2 brings us to one of the problems in Paul's day and notice it was food. Verse 2. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. That's why I gave up vegetables. Just kidding. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. I want you to notice that in Paul's mind, the weaker brother is the one who only eats vegetables. That's the opposite of what that person would think of themselves. What would they think of themselves? I'm more holy. I'm more spiritual because I would never eat a piece of meat that was sacrificed to idols. But I want to make this point too. Just because somebody's a vegetarian today does not mean they're a weaker brother or sister. To understand it completely, we need to make sure we go back and look culturally at what Paul's talking about. In Rome, many animals were sacrificed to idols in the many pagan temples. And they would take that meat and they would take a portion of it that wasn't burned on the altar and they would sell it to uh, butchers, if you will. The butchers would then set up meat shops and you could go buy this meat from a meat shop, from a butcher, if you will. They had a different name for them. Because you could never be sure of the source of the meat from the butcher shop, because it might have come from a pagan temple, there were Christians who were saying, well, I'm just going to stop eating meat because I wouldn't want to dare eat something that was sacrificed to an idol. That's the situation Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about someone who said, for health purposes, I'm going to eat only vegetables. He's talking about someone who's trying to be more spiritual and be more honoring to God based on their diet and their diet. And that's one of the things that he's looking at. Because we could never be sure of the source of the meat, many Jewish believers didn't want to abandon or violate their kosher laws, so they stopped eating meat altogether. That's what he's referring to when he comes to the food. It wasn't that they were weaker in their Christian life because of what they ate or didn't eat, but they were weaker because of their legalistic attitudes. You see, not eating meat didn't make them a stronger or a more mature Christian. What it did is it made them legalistic. It gave them a legalistic attitude, and it gave them a lack of love towards others. Didn't Paul talk about love in the previous chapter? It gave them a lack of love towards others. Legalism is a way of making us think we are strong. And those who don't keep the rules the way that we do, well, they're weaker. They're not as spiritual as I am. And Paul's speaking against this here this morning. You see, the stronger brother, Paul says, is the one that has the liberty to eat whatever he wants. But he doesn't exercise the liberty when he knows it'll cause somebody else to stumble. You see, the stronger brother realizes, my relationship with God isn't based on the steak that I eat or don't eat. My relationship with God is based on my life and my heart. But, but yet, if eating a steak will offend you, then I'll just skip the steak, and I'll eat, I'll eat a salad with you. Here's the way it works practically. When somebody has a conviction, or let me use my life for an example. When somebody has a conviction that's stronger or more narrow than mine, in other words, they, they're, they're more strict than I am, I'm usually okay with that. I'm like, okay, good for him. You, know, you, you keep your conviction, as long as you don't try to make me keep your conviction. Until you look at me and go, well, you need to keep my con-. No, no, that's your conviction. Don't give it to me. You keep your conviction. I'm cool with that. And even there's a human part that goes, well, good for them. They, you know, they, don't, they don't watch TV. They don't do whatever. Whatever their, their conviction is, they don't do those things. Good for them. But when somebody has a conviction that's broader or more liberal than mine, in other words, they allow a lot more, very liberal in what they allow themselves to do and watch and say, 
I usually want to sit down with that person and say, hey, straighten up. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing those things. You need to be more like me. You know, I want to impose my convictions on them. Do you, see, do you see what I'm saying? I want to impose my convictions on them. I want them to see things my way. And in a sense, when I do that or when you do that, I'm judging them not to be as spiritual or as holy as I am. Well, I want you to be more spiritual. So you, you do what I do. You think like I think and we'll, be, and we'll get along just fine. Look what Paul has to say about that in verse 4. Who are you? Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. Paul reminds us ever so delicately that it's not our job to judge fellow Christians. They will stand or fall before their master of Jesus Christ all by themselves. And I like the last part of the verse. God is able to make them stand. Don't worry about other people. Especially, again, he's talking about gray areas. He's talking about those things. Don't worry. So, Rob, what would be some examples of that in today's culture? These doubtful things that you're talking about. We're not to judge fellow Christians. In in what kind of things? Before we get there, I want to remind you that Paul is not saying that Christians should not confront other professing Christians when their life is filled with sin. He's not saying that. You know, we have perfectly as a believer, if I look across the aisle and I see that you're claiming to be a Christian and your life is filled with sin, I have a duty or an obligation to say something to you after much prayer. He's not talking about this. What he's talking about, again, is these doubtful things, these gray areas of Christianity where the Bible doesn't really speak clearly on them. Now, what are some of these doubtful things? And let me say this very clearly because I'm going to give you some of them. I'm going to give you a list of them. But I am not in any way addressing anybody personally this morning. I'm not using the pulpit, my my ability to speak up here this morning, my time to speak to address any one person. That would be cowardly and gutless. If I had a problem, if I was to look at your life and see something that was wrong in your life, I would have an obligation to come to you personally, not to stand up here and preach at one person. So as I list some of these things, I'm not speaking to you personally, and I promise you, if there's ever a problem between you and I, I will come to you personally. I will never use the pulpit to address something like that. But however I know when I give this list, there's going to be some people go, is he talking about me? No. If the shoe fits, wear it. I can't help that. We're in, we're in Romans 14. You know we'll be in Romans 15 next week, so I can't help that. But here's a list of some doubtful things or some, some gray areas for in Christianity. You ready? A glass of wine at dinner. A beer after mowing the lawn. Can a Christian chew tobacco or smoke a cigar? Can a godly woman wear a two-piece bathing suit? Can a man grow his hair long or sport an earring and still be pleasing to God? What about tattoos? Doubtful things also appear in the life of the family. Is it more spiritual to breastfeed or to bottle feed? How about Christian education? How should a Christian educate his kids? Homeschool? Christian school? Public school? Which one's right? Is it right or wrong to put your elderly parents in a nursing home? Or does God want you to bring them home to live out their days with you? What about Santa Claus? See, these are all doubtful things. These are all gray areas. They're all things that the Bible doesn't really speak clearly to. They're people that if we were to take a vote, you'd be on either side of the aisle. What about worship styles and church etiquette? They also have varying shades of gray. Is it pleasing to God to have rock and roll music on Sunday morning with with drums and guitars? Can a person wear shorts to church? Can the pastor wear blue jeans? By the way, that's what I'm wearing. You can't see them back there. (laughs) 
Should communion be taken weekly, monthly, quarterly, privately, publicly? What about, can we use face cards and play a game of spades at a church retreat? Are our cards all playing altogether evil? And doubtful things even appear in the doctrines of churches, don't they? Baptism by immersion or baptism by sprinkling. Will the rapture occur before the tribulation or after the tribulation? Good Christians line up on both sides of these issues. And of course, the granddaddy of them all, is the believer really once saved, always saved? You see, we can line up on both sides of that issue. In the area of doubtful things, in these gray areas in Christianity, Paul's telling us we need to leave some latitude. Don't be dogmatic. Don't be doctrinally. Don't don't assume your position is right and everybody else should come alongside of you in your position. When we judge our brothers and sisters in this area, we're usurping the Lord's authority. Let the Lord do his work in somebody's life. Let the Lord be the one to come to somebody and say, I don't want you watching that TV program or going to that movie anymore. Or I don't want you drinking beer or alcohol anymore. Long before I became a pastor, the Lord came to me and said, I want you to stop drinking. And I did that. I responded to that. Because the Lord came to me. But yet there's nothing in scripture that says a guy can't have a beer or a woman can't have a glass of wine or anything else. It's it's, it's very limited in scope. But it's not real super. Now, I believe it's different for the pastor or for someone in ministry. But when it comes to the average person, it's not there. Let's leave, room, let's leave room to grow. Let's leave room to agree on things. Agree to disagree on things. You hold your personal convictions, these gray areas, the way that you hold them. Don't impose them on one another. So the question becomes, what do we do as a body of Christ? When we look around the room at our friends and our family and our coworkers, and we say, wait a minute, I, I, I know somebody who's in the weaker faith. Well, the minute you think that, you might be the one in the weaker faith because we talked about that. But how do we treat somebody who's in the weaker faith? Verse 1 tells us, number one, we receive them. We receive them. Let them into the body of Christ. Let them come be a part of your home fellowship. Let them come be with you. Let them come alongside of you. We receive them. Then he gave us three things in the first few verses not to do with them. He said, do not dispute with them. Don't make arguments over it. Don't make a big deal. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill, he would say. It's not that big of a deal. Do not despise them. Don't think just because someone isn't as mature in the faith as you are that you don't want to be around them. Oh, they use language that I don't like to hear. Oh, they, they, they're, they're too worldly for me. No, no, that's not the way the body of Christ should be. We should be, come on, come on. We're going to let the Lord do the work in somebody's life, not us. We don't need to play the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. The Holy Spirit does a perfect job of his own. He doesn't need your help, especially in your spouse's life. Don't judge them. That's what Paul says, don't judge them. Let, let, let the Lord, they're, they're the Lord's servants. When somebody, comes a, when somebody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they belong to the Lord. Let him handle them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go over to another company down the street and tell them how to run their employees, would you? No, they'd, be, they'd throw you out of there. Why do you want to tell the Lord how to run his people? Let him handle his people. He, he can do a better job than you can. Do you know why? Because you only get to look at the outside. And you only see one small part of that person's life. And the Lord says, I know them intimately. I am working with them, and they are going to be my masterpiece when I'm done with them. Stop trying to stick clay where it doesn't belong. And stop trying to carve out clay where I'm not ready to remove it yet, or the whole thing might implode. Let him do the work in somebody's life. Look at verse 5 for another one of, another example of doubtful things or gray areas. One person 
esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Not only were they divided over food, in Paul's day they were also dividing over the importance of certain days, including Sabbath days and feast days. Aren't there still denominations who do this today? Sure there are. You have to worship God on a certain day of the week, and if you don't worship on that day, then it's sin. Please notice something when it comes to these doubtful things or these gray areas. Two people can be at opposite ends and still pleasing God at the exact same time. There's a latitude here. There's a gray area here. Let God be God. Read on and we'll see what Paul says. Verse, uh, the last part of verse 5. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. What that mean? Let each one fully, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. When it comes to these doubtful things, when it comes to these gray areas and things aren't spelled out so clearly in Scripture, Paul is simply, he's perfectly content leaving it up to each person's individual conscience before the Lord. Each person, we report to Christ and no one else. You don't report to me as the pastor, you report to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Far too often we adopt the convictions of a church or a denomination and say, that's what I believe, never taking the time personally to say, Lord, where should my life stand in relationship to this? Where does my life stand in relationship to this area? We need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to convict us. Establish your liberty or your convictions under the direction of Christ, not the direction of a church or a denomination or a ministry. Let the Lord use his word to speak to you to establish your liberties and your freedoms and your convictions. Don't do it based on somebody else. Again, just so I'm clear, Paul is not talking about those things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. He's not talking about those obvious sins. We are never to use our personal conscience as an excuse for clear and obvious unbiblical behavior. Let me say that again. We are never to use our personal conscience as an excuse for behavior in our life that is clearly unbiblical. It's obviously unbiblical. That's not what he's talking about here. He's in the doubtful things. He's in the gray area of Christianity. It's in this area that many churches have split and divided and denominations have formed. And I think Paul is saying, hey, stay unified. Stay together on this. He's basically saying, look, if you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you want to observe the day, observe the day. Just do it unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It's also good to note he's not talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about believers in Jesus Christ throughout this whole section. He's writing to the church in Rome, the the, the believing church in Rome. From the beginning of our life to the end of our life, it's to be dedicated to the Lord is what he's saying. From the time you believe on Jesus Christ to the time you die, you are supposed to, it's, your life is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. That's why he died and rose again. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 10. 
Why do you judge? But why do you judge your brother? Why do you, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then let then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Paul starts here and he asks two questions. Number one, why do you judge your brother? Why do you judge your brother? This probably refers, refers to those who are free to eat meat. The brother who is immature and a vegetarian, he's eating only vegetables, would look at his meat-eating brother and, and say they're not spiritual. You need to be more like me. The following question says, why do you show contempt for your brother? This is the opposite side of the spectrum. It refers to the meat-eater looking at his vegetarian brother and calling him uptight and legalistic. You see, sometimes those that are free want to look at everybody else and they want to point that, well, you're just legalistic, you're just uptight. No, you stop it is what Paul's saying. Stop, stop the nonsense. Paul's saying, quit worrying about what your brother's doing. Quit worrying about your sister in church. Worry about yourself because you're going to stand before the Lord someday. You're going to have to give an account. You have enough to worry about in your own life, essentially is what Paul's saying. You're going to give an account before the Lord someday. Did you catch what he said there in verse 10? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And down in verse 12, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Yes, believers will be judged differently than unbelievers, but it doesn't mean we won't stand before the Lord someday and give an account of the works in our life. Well, what's the judgment seat of Christ? What, what, what do you mean? Is that the thing in Revelation at the end? of the, No, that's the white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, this, what it refers to, it, this is what the, the word for judgment there is called, it's the bema or the bema seat. And the bema seat is equivalent to the judge's seat in the Olympic Games back in Rome at this time. So now what would happen is you would, you would participate in the Olympic Games, you would come before the bema seat, and you know what they would do? The winners would come and the judge, and they would receive their crowns, first, second, third places. They would be awarded for their, for their works, for, the way they, for what they did in the games. And that's what he's saying to the, the believer is going to stand before Christ one day. You will receive your rewards for the way that you lived your life on this earth. The judgment seat of Christ is only concerned with the Christian's rewards. The Bema seat is only for those who believe. It's not the white throne judgment. That's in the end of Revelation. That's coming later. When you go to meet the Lord, you're going to stand before him and he's going to reward you based on your works. All of the things that you did for selfish reasons or for the wrong reasons, that's all stripped away because you can't fool him. But all the things you did for the glory of God, you're going to receive the rewards for. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that in that day, our works, our motivations for those works will all become crystal clear. They'll all become clear. Those things that were done for the Lord, they're going to be rewarded. Those things that were done for recognition among, your men, among fellow men, those things done with unpure motives, it's all going to be stripped away. They don't count. Those things that you've already been rewarded for on this earth, it, it doesn't count. It's, it's, that's why it's so important that when you serve in the body of Christ and when you serve at your job, you're serving unto the Lord. You're not serving for that recognition that goes along with it. So people will look and say, oh, isn't he spiritual? Isn't, isn't he a good Christian? Isn't she a good Christian? If she opens her Bible every day at lunchtime, and, and if you're opening your Bible at lunchtime just so people will see you open your Bible, it doesn't count. I want people to see me in a certain way, so I do certain things. Those are stripped away. Those are removed. That's the refiner's fire that Paul will talk about, not in this chapter, but in another place. 
since we'll all appear before the Lord someday, let the Lord deal with your brother or your sister in these areas. You focus on yourself. You focus on what God's doing in your life because someday you and I will stand accountable for what we've done and what we haven't done. But Paul doesn't stop there. He takes it a step further. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Paul's clearly told us not to judge one another, but now he adds something to it. He says we should resolve to do something. Make up your mind to do something. And this is what he says, not to put a stumbling block before our brother or to cause our brother or our sister to fall. In your liberty, don't do something that's going to cause somebody else to fall away from the Lord. What's it mean? It means that we should not do anything in our personal liberty that would cause your brother or your sister to stumble in their faith. Nothing, we should, we should never exercise a personal liberty, even though we can, if we think that it might cause someone else to stumble. I ran across this illustration, and I'll read it to you. There was once a man who always had a bottle of wine with, the th- with his Thanksgiving dinner. One Thanksgiving, he found himself bone dry, so he bundled up and headed to the corner liquor store. As he walked down the street, he heard someone following him. He looked back. It was his very own little boy. It stunned him to think of where he was leading his son. He turned around and headed back home. He didn't want his son to follow him to the liquor store. You see, we have to be careful as believers that we don't take our liberty and it causes someone else to stumble. I mentioned earlier having a glass of wine or a beer after. That's fine. That's that's not necessarily unbiblical. But would you do that around people who you know are struggling with alcohol? No. Would you sit in a restaurant? If I was to sit in a restaurant and have a glass of wine and you were to sit across from me and say, hey, the pastor's drinking, would it stumble you? It should. It should stumble you. You shouldn't be, oh, that's cool. No, it shouldn't be cool. I'm called to live to the higher standard. And the Bible's clear. I shouldn't be drinking. I shouldn't be given to wine. Timothy tells us that. But you see, we need to be careful that the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, the freedoms that we have, the liberty that we have, doesn't cause our brother or our sister to stumble. Paul goes on to expand upon the point in verse 14. He says, I know, and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Even though Paul was convinced there's nothing unclean about eating meat. No, it wasn't kosher. It's not unclean. It did not justify the destruction of a Christian brother or sister just so he could have a steak. He would rather skip the steak and just eat along with the Christian brother or sister so as not to bring them to fall in their own sin. You see, was it wrong to eat meat? No, in their mind it was wrong. So therefore, Paul says, just because it's wrong in your mind, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to argue the point of whether it's right or wrong. I'm just going to honor you by not doing it and not exercising my liberty at that time. The issue is not, do I have personal liberty? The issue is if I am grieving my brother and I am no longer walking in love. See, it's not can I do it. 
The issue is if I'm doing it and I'm hurting somebody, I've, 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 I've foregone love in my life. You see, love doesn't do that. Love looks at somebody else and says, I don't want to hurt them in any way. If me having a steak offends them, I'm going to skip the steak. If me having a drink offends them, I'm going to skip the drink. If me having whatever, if it offends them, I'm going to skip it because I care and I love them. This is the way the Christian church should be operating. Sadly, we oftentimes fall short. Do not destroy your brother over food. Christ died for him. Just go without it. Get it at the next meal. Get it when you're with somebody else. It doesn't really matter. Look at verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and the joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. The Roman Christians were upset over diet and days, but meat and drink are of little consequence in God's plan, in the scheme of things, in God's economy. What matters in God's economy are the matters or the concerns of your very heart. It's not what we do on the outside. What is my heart saying? What is my heart doing? The liberty we have is good, but if we destroy another brother while exercising your freedom, then I've turned my liberty into evil, Paul says. You've wasted it. You've ruined it. You've taken what was good and you've made it evil by not considering your brother. Verse 19, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Paul says these are the things you should be chasing. These are the things that should be focused. We shouldn't be arguing whether or not we can or not. We should instead be making our focus, turning our focus things that make for peace. You see, when you meet with your Christian brother or sister, if you know there's something they've, they have a personal conviction that maybe you don't agree with, don't argue about the conviction. Just come, come underneath their conviction while you're together with them. That's what Paul's saying. Let's make peace over it. Let's not make it an argument. Let's not make it a division. Let's not make the dinner conversation a fight or a Bible debate. Let's just enjoy the fellowship with one another. He also says things, with, things which may edify one another. Build them up. Look to edify your brother and sister. Not exercise my own liberty. I can do it. It's my right. So what? A true right means you don't have to do it. A true liberty is the freedom to do it or not to do it. Either way, if we're focusing on being at peace with all men and building men up, then the likelihood of us stumbling them is really small, isn't it? It would be so small. But our focus is not usually that. Our focus is usually on who? On me and what I can do and what I have a right to do. On the other hand, if all we do is about exercising our liberty... If all, we're do, if all we're concerned about is my rights and my, I can do that and the Bible doesn't say I can't, then we just turn that liberty into evil against them. We just, we, just, we just miss the whole point of it. God's mission in this world is to save souls and to mature believers, not indulge callous Christians who care more about making a point than helping folks grow. Let me read that again because that's important. God's mission in this world is to save souls and mature believers, not indulge callous Christians who care more about making a point or winning an argument than helping people grow. 
See, we should be wanting to help each other grow, not win an argument against one another. Verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, let me explain it to you. If you have a strong faith and have liberty to partake in certain personal liberties, you can do these because of your faith. Have it before God and don't condemn yourself in what you approve. In other words, let me put it to you a different way. If God has called you to give up some personal liberty, don't use it anymore. It's no longer your personal liberty. It's no longer something that you can do. If the Lord put on your heart to stop drinking alcohol, you don't have that liberty anymore. It is now sin for you to drink alcohol because God has called you to stop doing it. So whatever the personal liberty, in other words, there might be something that is a gray area in Christianity. But as you seek the Lord, the Lord's going to say to you, I don't want you doing this anymore. And you'll know, you'll feel guilty when you do it. He'll convict you when you do it. When that happens, you give it up. Because if you continue doing it, well, it's a personal liberty for all Christians. Not for you, it's not. It's not a liberty for me to drink alcohol, even if I wasn't a pastor. If I, was, if I was not a pastor, I don't have that liberty because God specifically told me through his scriptures, through my studying, through my asking him, no, I don't want you drinking alcohol. I want you to stay away from it. So if I were to go do that, although it might be a liberty for you to enjoy, it would be something that I would now be sinning. That's what he's saying here. Develop your, that's what I'm talking about. Develop your own, your own convictions, your own liberties with the Lord. Don't look to the church or, or me or your neighbor or somebody else to develop those for you because these are areas where the Lord wants to work personally in your life. There's, these are where he wants to shape you and mold you to work in his life. You go to a country like Germany, they drink after church all the time. They're drinking beer, Christians do. It, it's a cultural thing. They have the liberty to do that. But it's, we have to make sure, what is God calling us? What is your liberty? Where, where do your boundaries lie in those things? Again, we're not talking about the things that the Bible speaks very, very clearly of. Let me give you one final example before we close, Charles Spurgeon, you know, I read him and I, I like him a lot. He's a Baptist uh, preacher. He had a good friend named Joseph Parker. Both of these men were powerful preachers who were used greatly by the Lord, but they had a public dispute. They had a falling out, if you will. Spurgeon could not understand how Parker could go to the theater and watch plays. He was appalled by the fact that a person who called themselves a Christian would go to the theater and watch plays. Parker, on the other hand, couldn't understand how Spurgeon could smoke cigars. If you didn't know it, Spurgeon was a cigar smoker. These two had a public falling out where they criticized each other publicly over this. Once Spurgeon was questioned about his smoking, and he replied, I never smoke in excess. When someone asked him what he meant by excess, he answered, never more than two at a time. <laughs> In his later years, Spurgeon finally gave up smoking when he opened the newspaper one day. He opened the London Times and he saw a full-page ad for cigars. And the tagline said, the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. From that day on, he laid them down and never smoked another cigar. He, didn't want to, he did not want a believer to become addicted to a vice because of his example. You see, when his liberty, it was his liberty that he believed, but the moment he realized that liberty was now affecting other people, 
He laid it down. He gave up that liberty. When it comes to these doubtful things, when it comes to these gray areas in our Christianity, Paul clearly gave us some instructions. To those that are weaker, he said, receive them. Don't dispute with them. Don't despise them. Don't judge them. Don't stumble them. Pursue the things which make for peace with them and edify them. Ultimately, when it comes to these gray areas of Christianity, these doubtful things, let God be God and you be the one seeking God. Don't look to your spouse for your personal convictions. Look to your God. Let him be the one that leads you. And be careful as our church continues to grow that we don't allow these kinds of divisions from these doubtful things and these gray areas to creep into our conversations and creep into our minds because these are the very things that Satan uses to divide churches and friends and families over. Don't let it happen. Guard against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture. Lord, we live in a world of legalism and judgment. And we understand that you're not talking about those things that the Bible speaks clearly of. You're talking about those things where we have liberty to allow you to be God in our life and you to be the one that leads us and guides us and tells us what we can do and what we can't do. This is the personal part of our relationship with you, Lord. So, Father, may each of us here go to you to establish our liberties and our convictions. Certainly the scriptures establish some convictions clear as day. But on these gray areas, may we care enough to fall to our knees to ask you, Lord, what you think about it for our life individually. Lord, may we not apply our convictions to everybody around us. May we simply live a life pleasing to you and realize that everybody around us, all the other believers, they're your servants, and you are able to make them stand. You will make them stand. We don't need to help you with that. Lord, you've given us the Holy Spirit, and that is all that we need. And Father, for our church, I pray that you would protect us from these types of divisions, these types of arguments. I pray that we can converse, that those that are weak would become strong, that we can converse without arguing, that we could understand different sides of an opinion, realizing that it is you who are God, and that even being at opposite ends of these doubtful things, we can still be pleasing to you, that we not become so narrow-minded that we only see things our way, but instead that we see things your way, allowing you to deal with each of us individually. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.